morning to each and every one. You will notice I'm sporting a different mic this morning. Can you hear me? I, uh, I've been waging a losing battle with that ear mic ever since I got here, culminating in several unseemly outbursts last week, so we thought we would, uh, we thought we would give this a try. If you have any complaints, see Chris. I don't want to hear about it. But, uh, sorry, Chris. Good to be with you as always, and certainly a pleasure and privilege to open God's Word as we continue to worship together, culminating obviously this morning in our participation of the Lord's Supper. We are in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, you might have guessed that already from several of the songs and the scriptures which have been shared And this morning we're going to ponder together this wonderful truth concerning the Good Shepherd. In John chapter 10, we find two discourses, if you like, two sermons, two conversations. The first is found in verses 1 through 18. And this discourse doesn't end well. Look at verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? That's the first discourse. The second discourse begins in verse 22 and carries on to the end of verse 38. And it doesn't end well. Look at verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This chapter, these two discourses related, significantly related to what we have already considered in chapter 9. And here the Lord Jesus is really expounding on that incident in chapter 9 involving his healing of the blind man. And now by way of these two discourses, he expands on it. And yet we will see that both ends in opposition and controversy. just, just uh, by way of a side note, it is something to, to consider the public ministry of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? And to take a moment and to consider a fact that, humans, humanly speaking, it was a dismal failure. I hate I almost feel like it's blasphemy to say that. But humanly speaking, humanly speaking, Christ's public ministry was a dismal failure. Three years, three and a half years, and what does he have to show for it by the time he goes to the cross? Eleven disciples and a few women. His public ministry is marked by reproach, ridicule, and rejection. They don't want anything to do with him. I need to be careful here because I'm off on a tangent and I could preach a sermon on this. But let me just, let me just uh, share with you one, one tremendous point of application when we consider the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this reproach. It is this ridicule that he constantly experienced. And that as Christians, when we engage in Christian ministry, and when we do things in the name of Christ, we can expect exactly the same thing. I suppose that's why the author of the epistle to the Hebrews wrote, Let us go out to Christ. Let us go out to Christ. Where? Outside the camp. And bear the reproach. That he endured. Very significant for us. And particularly significant in the days in which we find ourselves. But that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. We're looking at John chapter 10. And what we're going to do today is consider that first discourse. We won't exhaust it. We're going to come back to it again next Lord's Day, Lord willing. But I would at the very least like to give you an overview of that first discourse this morning. Drive home six very important lessons. And then, as I already said, culminate our worship and our participation of the Lord's Supper. And so for now, for now, I invite you to follow along as I read this sermon for us, beginning in the first verse of John chapter 10. The word of the Lord declares, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? An obvious reference to the incident in the previous chapter, chapter 9. And what I'd like to do for us right at the outset is give us a brief outline of these verses, three very basic sections. There's an allegory or a figure of speech for starters in the first six verses. There is secondly an explanation of that allegory beginning in verse 7 right through to verse 18. And then the response, verses 19 through 21. So bear with me as I give this exposition, brief explanation of these verses And then we'll consider what there is in these verses that the Spirit of God is seeking to impress upon our minds and upon our hearts. So there's an allegory. The first six verses. Look at the sixth verse. Christ says it, very plain language. This, John says it rather, this figure of speech. In other words, what we have just heard Christ say in verses 1 through 5 is a figure of speech. He used it with them. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. So John tells us, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that in these first five verses, the Lord Jesus is using a figure of speech. A figure of speech known as an allegory. An extended metaphor, if you like. In which he is drawing a comparison. Drawing a comparison. Well, what are the essential elements In this allegory, kids, you're going to have to be quick here. If you want to fill in all five of these blanks, I'm going to move real quick here. Five essential elements in the allegory. Firstly, there is a sheepfold. That's obvious. Christ states it. Verse one, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, enter through the sheepfold by the door. So there's the first element in the allegory. There is a sheepfold. The second element is this. There is a a door. Every sheepfold has a door. There is only one door. It is an opening through which the shepherd and the sheep pass. The third basic element is this. There is a shepherd. Who is the shepherd? Well, Christ gives us a hint. He tells us that this man, this individual, this shepherd is the person who actually uses the door. And then there is, fourthly, a stranger. Who is the stranger? Well, this is the person who does not enter the sheepfold through the door, 
but enters by some other means, perhaps climbing over the wall or digging a ditch under the wall. But this person is a stranger, a thief, a robber, does not enter in through the door. And then the fifth basic element is this. There are sheep. So there's a sheepfold, there is a door, there is a shepherd that uses the door, there is a stranger that does not use the door, and there are sheep. These sheep do not heed the voice of the stranger. In other words, they flee from the stranger, but they follow the shepherd. That's it. That's the allegory. How do they respond? Verse 6, once more. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. They heard it. Perhaps we hear it this morning. We grasp, okay, five basic elements. It's this idea of sheep folds, sheep, shepherds, strangers, fine, but I can't make heads or tails out. What does it mean? So the Lord Jesus proceeds to explain the allegory in very plain language beginning in verse 7, all the way through to verse 18. Now, for us to grasp his explanation of the allegory, we must, must, and let me say again, must, remember the context. What is the context? What has just happened in John chapter 9? No time elapses here between the chapters. This is a case in point where our chapter divisions are a false friend. Because they give you the impression that we're moving on to something else. We are not moving on to something else. What Christ says in John chapter 10 builds on what he has, what has just happened in John chapter 9. Namely, the Lord Jesus has passed by a blind man. The disciples have drawn his attention to the blind man asking who's responsible for this man's blindness. Did he sin or did his parents sin? The Lord Jesus moves the conversation away from the origin of that man's suffering to the purpose of the man's suffering, that the works of God might be revealed, revealed through Christ. Christ heals him. And that physical restoration of sight points to a need for spiritual restoration of sight. And throughout that chapter, we see that spiritual sight restored as the blind man comes to his spiritual senses, so to speak, and acknowledges that the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed God and is indeed the Savior of the world. How do the Jews respond? Less than enthusiastic. They are not thrilled. There's the understatement of the day. They call that man who was formerly blind before them. They interrogate him and he's tenacious. He will not let go of this faith that he has the seed of faith that has been planted in him. And despite their best efforts to to convince this man that Christ had nothing to do with the miracle and that Christ himself was a a Sabbath breaker, a sinner, this man will not let go of the facts. And what happens to him? They excommunicate him. And in so doing, they relegate him to a despicable existence as he is cut off from the religious and social life of the nation of Israel. That is the context for the allegory. And the allegory only makes sense in light of what we read in John chapter 9. And what the Lord Jesus in this allegory is trying to do is bring forth five basic truths, let's say, five truths which are practically illustrated in his healing of that blind man and in the Jews' response, and five truths that he now wants to make clear for all who will hear. And so, first of all, in the allegory, the Lord Jesus is saying something about his opponents. He has something to say about those Jewish religious elite. He has something to say about those Jewish authorities who had dared to excommunicate that man. And look at what we read in verse 8. Christ's words, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, what's the allegory? The allegory is of a sheepfold and a shepherd who calls his sheep and enters through the door and they hear him and they respond. 
in the east, which is the setting for this allegory, when a shepherd went to the sheepfold at the crack of dawn, here's the, here's, here's the facts. If someone had been there before him, it meant what? That that individual had come during the night. And that individual had come in over the wall. And that individual had come in to steal and to destroy. And the Lord Jesus is saying, look, these scribes and these Pharisees, they are thieves who have come in in the midst of the night. They're strangers. And they have but one purpose. It is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And you've just seen a living example of it. This man. Look at how they treated this man whom I healed. They excommunicated him. Someone who was blind. Someone who was poverty stricken. Someone who has just experienced a tremendous miracle. A remarkable happening in his life. Overcome with joy. And what have they done to this man? They are false shepherds. They are actually thieves. And they are here to destroy the flock. Not only, not only is their opposition, not only is their true nature seen in their treatment or in their handling of that man, but it's seen in the fact that they ignore the sign in chapter 9, don't they? A sign has just taken place before their very eyes. Sight has just been restored to a blind man. A God alone can perform such a miracle. But they ignore the sign. Not only do they mistreat the man, not only do they ignore the sign, but also in John chapter 9, they abuse the law. And they have all of their man-made rules and regulations and traditions governing their observance of the Sabbath. The Lord Jesus has not broken the Mosaic law insofar as the Sabbath goes What he has done is he has flagrantly broken their man-made human traditions which they had heaped upon the law. But they won't see it. They refuse to acknowledge it. And not only do they abuse the law, but they also distort the gospel. They have turned the law into a ladder to heaven. They trust in their own self-righteousness. They ignore the fact that the righteousness that God requires is the righteousness of Christ reckoned to us. And they think it's their own righteousness. They think it's their own doing. They think it's their own works. And in so doing, they adulterate the gospel. Not only that, they deny the word. In John chapter 9, they they, they claim to be Moses' disciples. Oh, you, you, they say to this man who has been healed, you are Christ's disciple. But we are disciples of Moses and we know that God has spoken to Moses. What a sham. If they had truly known that God had spoken to Moses, they would have known and understood and perceived that Moses had spoken of Christ. The very one who now stood in their presence, but they reject the word. And finally, as we see in chapter 9, They reject the Messiah. They want nothing to do with God's anointed. They want absolutely nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the first thing that Christ is seeking to convey in this allegory. He is saying something about his opponents. Again, the first statement of verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Talk about being blunt. Wow. Talk about being in your face. The Lord Jesus declares it here clearly in their hearing. You think you are the shepherds of Israel. You are false shepherds. Not only that, here is your true motive. You prey on this sheepfold, Israel. You prey upon their souls. And you do so with this purpose of stealing and killing and destroying. And then secondly, in the allegory, the Lord Jesus is saying something about his own identity. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. In case we didn't catch it the first time, look at verse 14. I am 
the good shepherd. So here we have a plain claim to deity. Firstly, in his use of those words, I am, it relates back to John 8, 58, does it not? Where the Lord Jesus states, before Abraham was, I am. And so I am the bread out of heaven. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. In each and every declaration, he is clearly affirming his own deity and identifying himself with the great I am. Secondly, we see his deity in this declaration by the fact that he takes to himself this divine ascription, shepherd. You think, for example, you need look no further than Psalm 23, verse 1, where we read what? The Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. The great I am is my shepherd. Jehovah is Israel's shepherd. This is a truth that is put on display throughout the Old Testament scriptures that God is Israel's shepherd. And now the Lord Jesus enters the scene and he declares boldly, unequivocally, I am the good shepherd. Oh, to hear people say today, the Lord Jesus never claimed to be God. What foolishness. He claims to be God in every other statement he makes. He is continually ascribing divine titles and divine names to himself. And through his miracles, he is showing forth these signs that reveal his identity. So that's the purpose of the allegory. Yes, there is a sheepfold. And this sheepfold has one true shepherd, one divine shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He is pointing again to his incarnation. Thirdly, the Lord Jesus has something to say about his ministry, doesn't he? The nature of his ministry. Look again at verse 11. I am not merely the shepherd, but the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Good as opposed to what? Or good shall I say, as opposed to whom? The false shepherds. As opposed to the Jewish religious authorities. I am the good shepherd over against those evil shepherds. The Lord Jesus knows His sheep as opposed to the stranger. The Lord Jesus blesses His sheep as opposed to the thief. And the Lord Jesus dies for his sheep as opposed to the hireling. He is a shepherd who has the best interests of his sheep in view ever before him. He is the shepherd who wants what is best for his sheep. He is a shepherd who cares intimately for his sheep. He is a shepherd, a shepherd whose goodness is revealed to such an extent that he is prepared to lay down his life on behalf of his sheep. And so the Lord Jesus reveals his ministry, the nature of his ministry, the beauty of his ministry in this allegory. And fourthly, he has something to say about his purpose. His purpose in this allegory. Look at verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And so we have, firstly, the Lord Jesus coming to the sheepfold of the Jews, we might say, the sheepfold of Judaism. And He calls, And from among the Jews, he calls his sheep. We have just seen it displayed in chapter 9. He calls to this man who had been born blind. He heals him physically. 
then he begins to work on him spiritually. And by way of that opposition, that faith, that gift of God takes root in the heart of that man. And he confesses that Christ is the Lord. He bows down and he worships him. And Christ has called one solitary single sheep out of the Jewish sheepfold. And he's called others such as his, his disciples and others over the course of his ministry. And he continues to call his sheep from among the Jews. But he adds to that, hey, I've got sheep that belong to another fold. They are of a different sheep fold. And here we enter into the realm of the Gentiles. And just as God calls his sheep, those who are his own, as Christ calls them from that fold of Judaism, so too he calls them from this fold of the Gentiles. And what happens? Verse 16, I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. He's speaking of his church, is he not? He is speaking of his glorious bride. He is speaking of his present day ministry, whereby the great shepherd of the church of the flock enthroned in high calls his own, calls his people, calls his sheep from among the Jews, from among the Gentiles, from among these two folds, and he makes them one in himself. Part of his mystical body, part of his spiritual bride, part of the church. The church on whom he has laid, on whose behalf he has laid down his life, purchasing her redemption. Purchasing her salvation. That is his purpose. That is his goal. That is the end of his ministry that he always has in view as he sojourns here on earth. And so, yes, he preaches. And yes, there is reproach and there is ridicule and there is rejection. And yes, humanly speaking, we might take a survey of the ministry of the Lord Jesus the public ministry of Christ, and we might think to ourselves, humanly speaking, what a dismal failure. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because in his public ministry, he always has his eye on those who are his own. He always has his eye on those whom the Father gave him before the very foundation of the world. And he calls them to himself. Again, from among the fold of the Jews. From among the fold of the Gentiles. Creating one new man. One new body in himself. And this ties in with the fifth truth Christ is seeking to convey in this allegory. He is saying something about his people, isn't he? We could look at a number of different verses in this regard. Focus in on verse 16 with me once again. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And here is a wonderful statement. And they will listen to my voice. Here the Lord Jesus declares a tremendous truth concerning his sheep. They hear his voice. So you think of that man born blind who Christ heals. And then restores his spiritual sight so that he understands who Christ is. When that solitary, lonely, ignorant, uneducated man is brought before the spiritual elite of the nation of Israel. And stands before men with initials and credentials after their names that would make their head spin. He will not be moved. He will not listen to their eloquent syllogisms. He has absolutely no room in his heart for their faulty arguments. He has absolutely no place in his mind for their, for their misconstrued arguments. Why? Because he has already heard the voice of his shepherd. And nothing can shake him. Nothing can move him. He has heard the voice of his shepherd calling and beckoning and he has responded. And the moment he starts to hear all these other voices from all these false shepherds, thieves and robbers, those who seek to kill and destroy, 
He wants nothing to do with them and rejects them to such an extent and offends them to such a measure that they cast him out, excommunicating him from the fold of Judaism. So be it. Why? Because he has, en- he has gone outside the camp to Christ to suffer the reproach and to suffer the rejection. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying about his people here. Yeah, we are but sheep. Helpless and hopeless sheep. Oh, but we know the voice of our shepherd. And when others call, yeah, there's something not quite right. But when we hear the voice of the risen Christ through His Word, God's Word, our hearts are warmed, our hearts are stirred, and we respond to His voice. The soul, just like the body, has senses. And as the body has physical senses, so too the soul has spiritual senses. And these senses are awakened and and heightened and quickened. When we hear that beautiful, gentle, loving voice of the Good Shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. That's the explanation of the allegory. There you go. Then there's a response. Oh, how depressing. Quickly, the response. Verse 19, there was again a division. No big surprise there. Among the Jews, because of these words, many of them said, this is just... Unbelievable. Mind-boggling. He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? But others said, they're not so sure. These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They haven't forgotten the sign. They haven't forgotten this man who has been healed in their presence and they're still... The mind is still working like 90, trying to figure it all out. How can this be? What does this mean? So there is some hope. There is some interest. There is some, some interest in, in, into discerning the, the identity of Christ. And yet, as we see, as we move on through John's Gospel account, this seed of interest is drowned out. It's squashed by this cry of hatred. He has a demon. And he is insane. Why? Listen to him. That's the text. You have an allegory. There is an explanation. And there is a response. Now, having said all that, as I've been meditating on on these verses over the past couple of weeks, I believe there are uh, six lessons that we really need to hear and take to heart from, from, these, from these words. Uh, I've divided them, put them in two categories. The first three are by way of exhortation, uh, by way of challenge. Uh, three challenges we need to hear and need to be sure we're very clear on. And then there are three words of encouragement. Three truths from which we can take great comfort this morning. So let me begin, let me begin with a word of exhortation. And then finish much more positively with the word of comfort, the word of encouragement. But by way of exhortation, three very important lessons that they just, they just leap out at us from, from the pages of Scripture here. The first is obvious. Brothers and sisters, we must guard against strangers. That, that's just stating the obvious. When we were children, much younger, our, our parents would tell us, our teachers would inform us, you must never speak with strangers. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed as Christians. And the strangers that are in view are who? These false shepherds. And so the Apostle Paul warns the elders of the church in the city of Ephesus in Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. I know that after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, 
from among your own selves. In other words, from among you men who are standing right here in front of me will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We must guard against strangers. How do we identify a stranger, especially when they're disguised in sheep's clothing? It's actually rather simple. And the answer is laid out for us in very plain language in John chapter 8. And we we noted it when we went through that chapter. In John chapter 8, we observe that insofar as the Jews were concerned, there were two truths that they just would not stomach. And two truths that just set them off when it came to the Lord Jesus, that just, just they would not hear it, they would not abide it, and they responded so violently. The first truth was this, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a question we must ask of every so-called Christian leader. A question we must ask of every so-called professing believer. What do you think of Christ? And anything short of a full, unequivocal proclamation of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is a sign that we are standing in the presence of a false shepherd. If you get Christ wrong, you get the gospel wrong. And we lead people astray. And the second truth, and this one may seem interesting to you, but I stand by it and affirm it wholeheartedly. The second truth that the Jews and those false religious leaders, false shepherds would not bear was the depravity of man. And there is the second question we must ask of every so-called Christian leader in our day. Not merely what do you think of Christ, but what do you think of man? And how do you define man's Because if we err in our definition of man's sin, we err in our remedy to that sin. And if we change our doctrine of man's sin, by consequence, we change the remedy that we offer to man. So James White writes and states it so well. Change the biblical teaching of man's need. And you will of necessity have to change the nature of the salvation God provides. Every, and this is not an overstatement, this is not exaggeration, every fundamental error regarding the gospel, the doctrine of justification that man has ever invented flows from a denial of the nature and impact of sin in man's life. To deny the doctrine of depravity and to to deny the utter sinfulness of man is to change the gospel. There is no biblical doctrine of justification. There is no biblical doctrine of the new birth, regeneration. There is no biblical doctrine of sanctification. There is no biblical doctrine of election. There is no biblical doctrine of any facet of the gospel as it is revealed to us in Scripture if we err in what Scripture has to say about man's sin. And I guarantee you, I guarantee it 100%, here is a sign, a certain sign of a false shepherd. It is a man who denies what Scripture has to say about our sinfulness, and therefore concerning our need before a holy God. That was the case with the Jews and the Jewish sheepfold. I dare say that is the case within evangelicalism today. As we have so many different Gospels floating around, so many different calls to Christ. Well, any call to Christ any invitation to place our faith in Christ other than a desire in us to meet face to face with someone who can save us from our sin is a false gospel. And without any doubt and without any question is the voice of a false shepherd. Oh, we must guard against strangers. Secondly, by way of exhortation, we must enter by the door. There's only one door. It's actually quite interesting. In that day, in the east, in that land, a sheepfold had had its walls quite high. 
then there was an opening. There wasn't actually any door. It was just an opening. And so the shepherds were out in their fields during the day. They would come collectively, put their flocks in the sheepfold, and then one of them, what would he do? He would lie down and fall asleep and spend the night right there in the doorway, thereby becoming the door. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the door. There is only one door. And we must be certain that we enter through Christ. And so we hear him cry later in John's Gospel account, I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one, dare I say, no matter how hard they try, or however sincere they think they might be, no one comes to me. No one comes to the Father apart from me. So there the Lord Jesus is declaring His exclusivity. That He is the only means by which we can be saved. And so let me ask you this morning, friend, have you ever entered through the door? It doesn't matter how good you think you've been. It doesn't matter what your track record is in terms of church attendance. It doesn't matter what you think you are before God that somehow merits some kind of favor or some sort of corner in heaven for you. It doesn't matter what faith, religion, tradition you belong to. The question of the moment, the question of the hour, the question of all eternity is this. What do you think of Christ? He is the door. and He is the only way in. And I know people hate it in a relativistic society. And people's backs go up and they cry, how dare you be so arrogant? It is not arrogant to simply declare the truth in love. There is one Savior and one name that God has given under heaven by which we must be saved. It is the name of Christ. He is the door. Remember a preacher years ago basing an entire sermon on Noah's Ark. And the question he started with and ended with and would not let go of throughout the entire sermon was this. How many doors on Noah's Ark? Only one. And if you miss the door, you miss salvation. And so it is when it comes to the Gospel. To miss Christ is to miss salvation. It is to miss glory. It is to miss God. We can only come to God through His own appointed means. And that means is the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third word of exhortation is this. We must hear the shepherd's voice. Oh, be certain, friend, that you have heard the shepherd's voice. Uh, babies are a marvelous thing. You think of Selah and some of these other babies that God has blessed us with of late. The remarkable thing about babies and infants, uh, they don't understand words, do they? Absolutely no grasp of words and uh, cognitive understanding while still developing. Oh, but they know their voice of their mother. They know their father's voice. They are able to discern their voices from all others. So too when it comes to God's children. I may not know a great deal. I may not be able to cross all my T's and dot all my I's. I may not be able to wax eloquent when it comes to theology and all kinds of doctrines and definitions, but I know the voice of my Savior. I know the voice of Christ when He speaks to me from His Word. Let me ask you, friend, have you ever heard Christ's voice? I don't mean audibly in the night. That can deceive you and send you off into left field with the fairies. I mean, have you heard God's voice, Christ's voice in His Word? When His Word is opened, when you open it, and when you read, although you don't grasp everything or understand every facet and angle and truth and doctrine and lesson, is there something that warms your heart? Do you hear the voice of your shepherd? Friend, that you may profess to be a Christian, but I'll be blunt. I'll state it, as, state it as it is. If you have never heard the shepherd's voice, if you take no delight in this book, and if it isn't your delight, despite the struggles that come our way, 
and seek to impede us and prevent us from doing so, in delighting in this book, in hearing the voice of our shepherd. If, that, if, if I'm talking a, 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 in a fourth tongue, different language to you, it can only mean one thing. You aren't one of his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. Have you heard it? Have you heard him calling to you through the written word of God? Have you heard him convict you of your sin? Have you heard him as he puts his glory on display and the beauty of his attributes before you and sets this this banquet of God's glory in your very presence. Have you heard Him? I said it already. I'll repeat it again. Our bodies have physical senses. We sit down to a good meal and it's our senses just overload as we anticipate tasting and the smell of, the, of, of that food. Or we touch something or we hear something. So too our souls by the Spirit of God have spiritual senses. We know when our Shepherd, when our Master, when our Lord, when our Savior speaks. Let me ask you again so that you are under no false illusions as to your state before a holy God. Have you heard? Do you discern the Shepherd's voice? We can build on that. We can build on that as we consider all of these voices that we hear today, all of these cries from false shepherds and how disconcerting it is living in a day in which professing believers are enamored with every passing fad, running after this shepherd, running after that shepherd, false shepherds. Now, do we hear the voice of a master? I remember an elderly woman quite elderly, years ago, I was preaching in a church. can't remember the text, but I said something concerning a particular doctrine, mentioned a false shepherd from the pulpit. Afterwards, she came to me and, and she thanked me. And, and her words were simply these. She says, you know, I always knew there was something wrong there with that fellow. I couldn't explain what it was. I could never have articulated it. But whenever he spoke, I never heard the voice of my shepherd. Do we hear him? Do we discern him through his word? That's a tremendous exhortation. It's a tremendous challenge to us living in this confusing day. On now to three lessons by way of comfort. Three tremendous lessons by way of encouragement. And the first is as follows. We are known by Christ. He says it right here in the text. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. That's precious. We need to define what we mean by know. I know two plus two equals four. Right? I know we live in Glen Rose. I know it's cloudy outside. That's not the kind of knowledge the Lord Jesus is talking about here. Adam knew Eve. What does that mean? Physical intimacy, isn't it? Abraham knew Sarah. Physical intimacy. This idea of knowledge in Scripture points to intimacy in terms of the relationship. And when the Lord Jesus says, I know my sheep, He is not simply stating that He knows a bunch of facts and names and figures. What is He revealing? That He is personally and intimately acquainted with his sheep. Now, what is wonderful, truly wonderful, brothers and sisters, try to get your mind around this, please. When Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that God foreknew us, what does he mean? God's foreknowledge is not passive. God foreknowing does not mean that he simply knew we were going to do something or we would say something to which he reacts to in kind. No, when Paul says that God foreknew us, it's active. He foreknew us. Meaning what? He set his love upon us. That he entered into an intimate, personal relationship with us. This is mind-boggling. 
even before the foundation of the world, how you ask. How? And if you've been anywhere near our care groups on Wednesday nights, you know the answer. In Christ. Because this is a great truth. A great truth. This, this, this intimate personal knowledge that God, that Christ has for us. This love that He has set upon us isn't because there is anything lovable about us. It actually isn't the response to anything in us or about us. The Sproul declares, God does not love us because we are lovely. He loves us because Christ is lovely. He loves Christ. And as one of His sheep, I am one with Christ. Therefore, the love that God has for me is the very love of the triune God between Father, Son, and Spirit. And when Christ says, I know my sheep. Oh, please, brothers and sisters, take a little comfort from that. Take some encouragement. Why? Because it means His knowledge of me, His love for me, is contingent upon the immutable love that the triune God has for Himself. My sin can't change that. My failures can't change that. My shortcomings can't fail change that. God's love is immutably set upon me as one of His sheep. And this is perhaps my greatest comfort my greatest joy, my greatest source of strength and encouragement in life, that God loves me in Christ. I am one of His sheep from before the foundation of the world. And there is nothing in heaven, on earth, or in hell that can ever, ever change that. Oh, I find that to be so encouraging. When I'm down in the ditch, and when I'm just shoveling for all I'm worth and getting nowhere in my Christian journey, what a tremendous encouragement to bask in this wonderful truth. I know my sheep. And I'm struggling with sin. And I'm struggling with discouragement and disillusionment. What a great and precious truth. I know my sheep. And I face opposition, not unlike the opposition experienced by this man in John 9. Oh, a great solace and comfort to my soul. I know my sheep. Be comforted by it, brothers and sisters. We are known by Christ. The second great comforting lesson in this verse is as follows. We have a good shepherd. We have a good shepherd. One who has our best interests at heart. One who has our best interests always in view. And what a great encouragement considering our own weakness and sinfulness. We often sing prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So praise be to God because we have a good shepherd. We're sheep. I want to be a wolf. Maybe a lion or a bear or something like that. We are sheep. Incapable of caring for ourselves. Susceptible to all sorts of dangers. Unable to find our way. Too hopeless to find our own food. Too helpless to fight our own battles. Completely and utterly dependent upon our shepherd. A good shepherd. He feeds us with heavenly manna. He protects us all along the way. He heals us when we're wounded. He carries us when we're ill. And He bears patiently with our weaknesses. Be comforted, believer. We have a good shepherd. And the third comforting, encouraging lesson is this. We have abundant life in Christ. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly. 
Though I have to say it to this audience, I'm going to say it anyway. We know Christ isn't talking about personal peace and affluence. Surely we know that by now, don't we? Not your best life now in terms of wealth and health and prosperity. He is talking about a spiritual life. A life that is only found in Christ. He's speaking of joy in the midst of an unhappy world. Peace in a turbulent world. Strength in a trying world. Hope in a despairing world. We have abundant life. There's a difference, isn't there? There is a difference between mere life and abundant life. William J. writes, There is life in an acorn. But the oak tree has it more abundantly. We would agree, wouldn't we? So too in our Christian journey. There are lots of Christians out there who have life. But sadly, they've never experienced abundant life. Down. Always down. Always overrun. Always overcome. That delight in the Lord always escaping them. Why? I think the answer is rather simple. The author of the epistle to Hebrews tells us that we must do what? We must fix our eyes on Jesus. He alone is abundant life. You try playing a a sport such as baseball or tennis or golf. You take your eye off the ball. What happens? You mess up real bad. You try running a sprint or any kind of race. What is the death of every sprinter? It is to look to the side or look down or look up. We always have to have our eyes on the goal. We must fix our eyes on Christ. When we do, He strengthens our faith. He heightens our joy. He deepens our peace. He enlarges our love. And that is abundant, abundant, overflowing life. Three words of encouragement. We are known by Christ. We have a good shepherd. And we have abundant life in Christ. Oh, the Spirit knows our hearts, doesn't He? And my simple prayer is that He would take those words of exhortation, those words of encouragement, and according to your need, according to my need, the moment as it presents itself, that He might take those truths and apply them drive them home and bring forth that fruit in keeping with salvation that is for His eternal honor and for His eternal glory. Now, it is our joy, our delight this morning as we continue to worship. We've worshipped in song, in prayer, by sitting under God's Word. It's now our delight, being the first Sunday of the month, to celebrate together, to continue to worship together, by partaking of the Lord's Supper. And as we do, I ask you to turn with me, and perhaps perhaps your mind has already gone to this portion as I've been preaching this morning, the 23rd Psalm. I should have asked if there was anybody who wanted to guess what it was going to be. The 23rd Psalm. I'd like to read this for us. Just mention the highlights and encourage us, invite us, to meditate and think on these truths that we've pondered from John 10 this morning and upon this song. And as we worship in partaking of the bread and of the cup, that, that these, these truths might fill our minds and, and grip our souls and that we will delight in our great shepherd this morning. The 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, notice firstly, His glorious person. Verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. His glorious person. 
Notice, secondly, his tender care. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. His tender care. Notice his gracious presence. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod to protect, your staff to guide, they comfort me. Notice next his abundant blessing, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And notice finally his unchangeable promise, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 